You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it. God's word will always stand true. It's been tried in the fire, still good in this hour. A prayer to be a blessing. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Pod King Podcast, where we study the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages and how it was translated into the King James Version. Yesterday, we were studying about how the apagasma, the wisdom of God, is shown over and over in the book of Proverbs. Now, our overall study is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, Verse 3 is where we've gotten the word apagasma. That word is the brightness of his glory. And so I want to take that same thought that we were looking at yesterday and go on a little bit farther in the book of Proverbs, comparing that to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, and look and see what we find in the book of Proverbs. I think that you'll be pleasantly surprised by some of the things that we come across here. Hebrews chapter 1, and in verse 3, we begin to read right here, where it says, "...who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high." When it says the brightness of his glory, that is the apagasma. When you trace back the apagasma as we have... In all other writings, the apagasma is the wisdom of God. This is the writer of Hebrews saying that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Now, I want to go back to the book of Proverbs chapter 8. The whole chapter, all 36 verses, nearly every one of these verses has something to say about wisdom. And in that wisdom comparison with Christ, we can see more and more of who and what Jesus is just by knowing what wisdom is. So today, that's what we're going to talk about. All right, I'm going to read a little bit of he, uh, Proverbs, rather, chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Doeth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? She standeth in the top of high places by the way in the places of the paths. She crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming, in at the doors. Unto you, O man, I call, and my voice is to the sons of man. O ye simple, understand wisdom, and ye fools, be ye of an understanding heart. So wisdom is in the high places. Wisdom does not cry out to spirits or angels, but unto the sons of men, according to verse 4. Jesus didn't come to save the spirits or the angels, but he came to redeem mankind. So this is a definite correlation. We need to understand wisdom according to verse 5. It says, understand wisdom, and ye fools be of an understanding heart. Verse 6 says, I speak of excellent things, and my lips speak right things. Wisdom only says excellent things, and she always speaks right things. As a matter of fact, verse 7 says, for my mouth shall speak truth. And wickedness is an abomination to my lips. And we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Wickedness is an abomination to wisdom. So is wickedness an abomination to Jesus Christ as well. Wisdom only speaks righteousness or right things. Listen to verse 8. 
All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There's nothing forward or perverse in them. It's better to receive wisdom than silver and gold and rubies. Verses 10 and 11 tell us, Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared with it. Oh my. Now, who could you compare to wisdom that would come any closer than Christ? I don't think that anyone could. And so that's why it says there's nothing to be compared to it. Nothing you desire can be compared to wisdom. Who is likened to the Lord our God who dwelleth on high? One of the scriptures says, listen to verse 13. This is very telling. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. So wisdom is linked with the fear of the Lord. And as a matter of fact, wisdom is spoken of as if it is the Lord, because it says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And this has been wisdom speaking. And then wisdom says at the end, it says, the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. So in other words, wisdom has now spoken as the Lord. I think that's enough right there just to be able to drive a few nails in the coffin of the people who say that wisdom is only a characteristic or a quality. Going on, he says that wisdom hates evil and pride and arrogancy, evil ways and froward mouths. Verse 14 says, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. Wisdom possesses all strength. We read where Jesus has all power or strength in heaven and in earth. So verse 15 says, by me, kings reign and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. So wisdom is what appoints kings to reign, princes to decree judgment. Huh. I read another scripture one time that said the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. So if it's in the hands of wisdom and it's in the hands of the Lord, wisdom must be the Lord. Verse 16 says that it's by wisdom that princes and nobles rule, even all the judges of the earth. Verse 17 says, I love them that love me and those that seek me early shall find me. If you seek wisdom, you will find her. Jesus said, ye shall find me when ye seek me. Seek and ye shall find. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Hmm, that sounds very familiar also. Verse 18 says, riches and honor are with me. Yea, durable riches and righteousness. Wisdom is leading the way into righteousness. Listen to verse 20. I lead in the way of righteousness in the midst of the path of judgment that I may cause those that love me to inherit substance and I will fill their treasures. That sounds a lot like something that only the Lord could do for you. But listen as we get a little bit further. From verse 23 down, there's some pretty amazing things that's attributed unto wisdom. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. So in other words, before the world was, I was there. Verses 24 and 25, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. Oh my, so wisdom was there. Read verse 26 and 27. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, wisdom says, I was there through it all. 
I was present before God gave the command and the appointment to the things of the earth. Verse 29, this is amazing when you read it. When he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment, this is Genesis 1, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, listen to this, then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Oh my goodness. When God prepared the heavens, wisdom was there. When God made the earth, wisdom was there. If this is not just a beautiful and poetic description of Jesus Christ, I don't know what is. Wisdom saw when God put a compass on the waters. Wisdom was present before God appointed everything in the earth. Wisdom was by him and was brought up with him. That certainly sounds a lot like John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Wisdom was daily God's delight and rejoiced with him. That sure sounds like in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Let's try this. In the beginning was wisdom, and wisdom was with God. Hmm. But we balk when it comes to, and wisdom was God, because we don't want to say that we worship wisdom by no means, but yet the wisdom of God is personified by Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 31 on down. Rejoicing in the habitable part of the earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. Now, that habitable part of the earth ties in with Hebrews 1 and 6. Hebrews 1 and 6 says, And again, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. That word where it says world means inhabitable places. And then it begins to tell us that it is a place that God made habitable. And so, Jesus came to the habitable parts of the earth, and that's exactly what wisdom said she does. Oh, my. Now, it also ties in with chapter 1 and verse 9 of Hebrews, where it says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. What, what is that saying? Because God rejoiced with wisdom. It says, now therefore hearken unto me. This is Proverbs 8 and 32. Now therefore hearken unto me, O ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction, be wise, and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my doors. For whoso findeth me, findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me, wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me, love death. So those who keep the ways of wisdom, those who hears wisdom, will be blessed. If you find wisdom, you found life. Matter of fact, that reminds me of John 14 and 6. Once again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoso finds wisdom, they obtain favor of the Lord. Whoso sins against wisdom, does wrong against his own soul. If you hate wisdom, you must love death. That's another way of saying that wisdom is life, is it not? <laughs> oh, me. Let's go on into chapter 9. The first 12 verses of 9 is, is very good, talking about wisdom again. I only want to touch on about three places here. I want to read verse 1, verse 10, and verse 11, just to shorten this some. Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. On down it tells what wisdom has done. But listen to verses 10 and 11. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. 
For by me, now who's it talking about or who's speaking? It's wisdom. For by me, thy days shall be multiplied and the years of thy life shall be increased. Okay, so now we, we got to process this information. Wisdom's building a house. She's hewn out seven pillars. The fear of the Lord is the beginning or birthplace, which is what it means in the Hebrew, the birthplace of wisdom. By wisdom, days and years are extended. I believe all of this is conclusive evidence to prove that the wisdom of God is more than just a personification of somebody. I believe it's an Old Testament foretelling of Christ. In Proverbs 9, wisdom builds her house and she erects these seven pillars. Seven is the divine number. And that's where wisdom builds her house. We'll find later in our study in the book of Hebrews, when we get to chapter 3, God speaks about his house very often. Christ is the one who built the house. If wisdom's building a house and building it where God dwells, Christ builds the house and it's where God dwells, it seems pretty conclusive that Jesus is the wisdom of God from Proverbs. The writer of Hebrews uses Proverbs and the book, The Wisdom of Solomon, to prove Christ to the Jews. If the wisdom of God is Christ and wisdom is an attribute of God, I wonder could a person who is saved, wouldn't it just be natural that they would possess some amount of wisdom, especially if you've got Christ in you? I believe it really would. And everybody who accepts Christ, They've got to be wise in some way because they have escaped the pollutions of sin and the things of this world. Now, I want to examine a little bit of what the writer referred to as Christ being the express image of God. There it is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Just like we've been studying, he is the brightness of God's glory. He is the express image of God's person. I believe this is a declaration of very powerful imagery the idea of image is definitively related to the Logos doctrine found in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Just like the Logos, remember the word, the word, we, we read about the word, the word. That's, that's the divine Logos. That's the Greek word, Logos. The divine word, the Logos, is similar to the image of God because they're both agents of creation as well as revelation. If you think about it, what a word is to the ear, an image is to the eye. So the logos is for the ear. The image is for the eye. This is what the writer is trying to tell us here. This expression is just another way of giving a translation of the same fact, but doing it from one sense to the other, from the ear to the eye. You've got to hear, you've got to see. If seeing is believing, I believe it costs a seen it, they used to say. Well, the Bible says that those who can be saved are those who have heard. Okay, how shall they hear except there be a preacher? How shall they preach except he be sent? You, you know the thing, how it goes. You know how everything rolls out because we know Romans chapter 10. We understand verses 13 through 18 gives us the way that God works, the process. But yet he talks about the needing to see, the needing to hear. And when it says that he is the word, that means we need to hear what he's got to say. When it says he is the image of God, we need to see him as he is. This expression is just translating it from one sense to the other, as I said. When considered as the image of God, 
Christ is being proclaimed as the visible representation and manifestation of the invisible God. No man has seen God at any time, but the Son has revealed him. Jesus is the full and final expression of the divine nature. Jesus shows mankind the face of God by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 4 and 6. I want to proceed to the next part of the verse that we're we're inspecting. It says Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, we mentioned yesterday that that means it's a continuous work. That verb is always in action. It's an action verb that continues. It's a definite, so or it's indefinite, rather. It, it means that there's no stopping to it. Jesus is upholding all of these things by the word of his power. His word has miraculous power. That's the word dunamis that we looked at yesterday. There's several points in the next sentence that refers to past actions. When he had purged our sins and he sat down, had is a past tense word. Purged is something in the past. Sat down means something that's already been completed. All of these statements reflect past actions that have already been completed. These things are already done. So he has already purged our sins and he's already sat down. Only one of these words speaks of a continuation in the Greek. It's a past word that is still continuing. And that is the verb phrase, sat down. This is because Christ is still in heaven and he's still seated beside the Father right now. He's not moved. He's not gone anywhere. He's not going anywhere. So now we're moving on and we're going to look at something else right here that I think is very interesting. Not only has he sat down, but he has sat down by the right hand of the majesty on high Right hand is the Greek word dexios, and it can mean right hand or right side. Either way you translate this, the meaning is the same. He's sitting at the right of the Father. If I were to sit at your right side, I would be in effect seated by your right hand. The word in Greek for majesty is megalosune, megalosune. It describes the greatness of a divine being or the glory of a deity figure. Jesus is sat down at the right hand of the great divine majesty, which tells us a little more. Jesus is the one that was prophesied of in Psalms 110 and verse 1. Most of us remember that verse. We know that it's a messianic psalm. I wonder if we could apply it here. Reckon that that it works right here? Well, of course it does. Not only is it a possibility, it's more than just a probability. It does work here. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Right hand. Jesus is set down at the right hand of the majesty. And that's exactly what the messianic psalm said that Jesus would do or the Messiah rather would do. So let's see if the Bible goes along with this. Mark 16 and 19 says, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Mark is trying to leave no question as to who Christ is and what he did. I think that's pretty amazing. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, we've got the proof here, says, and he has sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. No doubt the writer of Hebrews knows this, believes this. Verse 13, he applies this to Jesus again. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? 
We got him seated, seated at the right hand once again. Hebrews 8 and 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We've got him on the throne here. Hebrews 10 and 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. One last place. Hebrews 12 and 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and guess what? And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, we understand that he's sitting right beside God, on, his right, on God's right side. By knowing this, we have proof that the doctrine of the ascension of Christ is correct. He did ascend back to heaven. He's in heaven once again. If you would argue this point, explain to me Psalm 110 and 1. <laughs> the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies. Okay. That all enemies are not defeated as of yet. They are being defeated. Christ defeated everything while he was here, but yet he went back to heaven to give mankind that power to overcome what he overcame. We know this is the Father speaking uh, when he says, set thou on my right hand. I want to look at a few other scriptures that ties Christ in with this scripture. In Matthew 22 and 44, Jesus is speaking to the people around him, and he's asked them, he said, who do you think Christ is? Whose son is? And they said, oh, he's the son of David. And Jesus says, how did David call him in spirit, Lord? For he said in verse 44, the Lord said unto my Lord, set thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? He's got them confused. They don't know how to answer. And Mark 12 and 36 adds just a little bit more. For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And then Luke, he says it again and just reiterates the same thing. David said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Three of the four gospels recount this Psalm 110 quotation. All of them apply it to Christ. And guess what? Every one of them, it's Christ asking them, who do you think Christ is? He wanted to know if they believed in him, if they believed on him but they did not. We have on record the Father speaking and calling someone else God in Psalm 110. Who would the Father call God? Who beside the Father is sitting on the throne in that passage? Who would share the throne with the Father in heaven? I believe we all should know that answer, and we know it's Jesus. Something that I find highly intriguing here is that Jesus did not or could not ascend back to heaven and resume sitting on the throne at the right hand of God until he had first purged our sins. Jesus never stops until he has accomplished God's will. He came to do God's will. L listen to Hebrews 10 and 7. Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written to me, to do thy will, O God. That's 10 and 7. Listen to verse 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Okay. When it says that Jesus purged our sins, let's see what that means. The Greek word is katharthromisos, and it's a washing off. It's an ablution. It's an expiation. It's a cleansing. It means to purge something. The main point of it is, is to undergo a type of purification. Jesus washed our sins away when he purged them. He cleansed our heart and soul from sin, purifying that which Satan had polluted. 
It wasn't until Jesus washed all of our sins away that he returned back to his original glory. What cleansing agent did Jesus use to purge us, reckon? (laughs) Well, I believe it was the blood of his own flesh because of Leviticus 17 and 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. It was our souls that were lost. It was the blood that atoned for them. When he died that horribly violent, bloody death, as every drop of blood fell, he was cleansing away our sins. We know that he is now seated in heaven beside the Father, continually making intercession for us. He is forever our high priest. In this study of Hebrews that we're doing, this is a theme that's going to broaden as we go deeper into the book. The writer's just given us a little small glimpse of what is still yet to come. This brings up a good question. Has Christ been allowed to sit at the right hand of the Father because of what he has done? Or is it his rightful place to begin with, and has he just only taken it back? Could I tell you that Jesus couldn't have done what he did had it not been for who he was? I believe that he has only resumed his rightful place that he enjoyed before he interrupted history with his appearance in Bethlehem. Some people mistakenly believe that Jesus earned his spot by the Father by his great obedience and by somehow overcoming sin. When you speak of Jesus in these terms, you are in fact denying his deity and saying he did it by works. That doesn't work, my friend. It's because of who he is that he could do what he did. All right, now we're going to go to our question segment. We had another question that was sent in, and the question was, was there a symbolic reason for Jesus being a carpenter by trade? My quick answer is going to be yes, absolutely yes. His involvement with wood spoke of the cross, but yet there's something even more compelling here that most people overlook. What most people fail to realize is that the word carpenter in that setting also means stonemason. It could mean anybody who built anything, whether by wood or by stone. I think that's pretty interesting considering that he was placed in a stone tomb and a stone was rolled over in front of the door. (laughs) He was hung on a wooden cross that was constructed together by wooden nails And here he is nailed to the cross, then placed in the tomb afterwards. And so he had involvement with both. I believe that it's not by coincidence. And as a matter of fact, I think it speaks all the way back to him being part of the creation process with the Father. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember that? So what is the earth? It's made of rock and it's covered with trees, which are wood. And so It speaks from the beginning of creation. There was rock and wood. There was going to be a wooden cross. There's going to be a stone rolled over the tomb. And there's going to be one who would come, who would take both in his hands and use them and then die by that means. That's the best that I can answer that question. There was another question that came in, and I think it's even a little bit more simple as far as in being able to answer. And I understand the thinking behind it. So I'll I'll ask the question, read it, and then I'll explain what I mean. Does God have a plan for everyone's life? Well, the simple answer, I could be smug and say, sure, he does. Yes. But I want to go a little bit further with this because obviously there's someone who is doubting 
that there's a plan for everybody or wondering if there might be a plan that God has for their life in particular. You know what? There's a feeling among a lot of our Christian people today that they are a nobody. They're a nothing. They'll never amount to anything. And I want to tell you something. God has a plan for your life. He's got a plan for every one of us. Yes, some may be preachers. Yes, some may get more fame than others. Some may be more seen than others. The janitor doesn't look like as glorious a job as the one preaching revival or singing the special or teaching the Sunday school class. But could I tell you, every one of us has something in life that God wants you to do. God's got a will for your life. He has a purpose for your creation. You are here for a reason. Nobody got here by accident. God brought us all into this place. So when we begin to wonder Do I have a purpose? The Bible is the answer to all questions that we have. And if you begin to wonder, what purpose am I here for? What is God's will for my life? I promise you, if you'll begin to pray and ask God to show you, search the scriptures and see what the Bible says, without a doubt, you will find your purpose in life. I also want to say this, while you can't find your purpose, so so far, if you haven't found it yet, I want to tell you, pray and seek the Lord and be faithful to him because it's God's will that every bit of his creation give him glory. That's the whole purpose. Read Revelation chapter 5, and it begins to talk about all of the fish of the sea and the fowls of the air praising God. The trees clap their hands when the winds blow. So even if you don't know fully what your whole total purpose of being on this earth is, We do know one thing, we were born to serve the Lord and we were born to praise him. So every one of us can do that. Even if you don't have a voice, you can do it in your heart. You can clap your hands if you've got hands. If you don't have hands, you can praise him in your heart. Every one of us has the ability to praise him. If a bird can praise God by by doing their thing, if the fish of the sea can praise God by swimming and doing what fish do, then I want to tell you, we as humans got to do these things for God. Or Jesus said the rocks would cry out in our place. I don't want a rock to cry out my place, and I'm sure you don't either. All right, we've come to the end of our study today, and I want you to remember, folks, if you have any Bible questions that you want answered, email us at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com, dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. If you just want to drop us a line and tell us how you feel that we're doing on the podcast or want to say something, feel free to do it at any time, and we'll read your uh, submission, and we'll do our best to answer your questions. All right, Lord willing, we'll jump in tomorrow and start looking at verse 4 in the book of Hebrews. May the Lord bless you. You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it. God's word will always stand true. It's been tried in the fire, still good in this hour. My prayer to be a blessing 